Welcome to the European Society of Intensive Care webinar on update on coronavirus. I'll be discussing manage, managing critically ill patients with COVID-19. I'm Yasin Arabi. I'm the chairman of intensive care department at King Abdulaziz University for Health Sciences in Saudi Arabia. I'm um, a, a principal investigator on several studies related to MERS and critical care. What I'll do in this webinar, I'm going to give background on epidemiology of COVID-19, on the clinical presentation and diagnosis, and on the approach or for us as intensivists to the bedside for managing these patients. I'll address ongoing trials, supportive therapy, steroids and immunomodulators, antivirals, co-infections, and, and some future directions. This is the third coronavirus outbreak in the last two decades. In 2003, the SARS outbreak um, uh, emerged. In 2012, the MERS outbreak emerged and cases still, still exist until present, and COVID-19 emerged in late, late 2019. Next slide shows the uh, terminology that we are using. COVID-19 referred to the disease is coronavirus disease 19. The virus, SARS-CoV-2, refers to severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2. The coronavirus is, um, has its name because of the spike proteins around the virus that gives us this crown shape. This is the seventh coronavirus that affects humans. The first four shown on the slide are known for a while to cause upper respiratory infection and sometimes lower respiratory tract infection. Lineage B has um, SARS-CoV and now SARS-CoV-2. Lineage C includes MERS-CoV. There is 75 to 80% genomic similarity between SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV. And there's 50% similarity with MERS-CoV and 96% similarity to one of the bad coronaviruses. This novel coronavirus used the same receptor as SARS-CoV, ACE2. MERS-CoV used a different receptor, DPP4. As we all know, the first cases of COVID um, uh, were reported from Wuhan, China, and now spread, unfortunately, around the globe. This epidemiologic curve referred to confirmed cases outside China. While cases in China declined over the last uh, uh, few days or weeks, there have been sharp increase in cases um, outside China, as shown in this slide. This is particularly true in Europe and Eastern Mediterranean regions um, um, shown in the slide. This is um, from the situational report by the WHO. Uh, at present, the number of cases exceeded 100,000 confirmed cases. Um, outside China, there's 24,000 confirmed cases with 3,610 cases over 24 hours preceding this report. In China, the number of daily cases had declined to 46 cases. The WHO risk assessment 
at a global, regional, and China level are all very high. When should we suspect COVID-19? This is the case definition based on WHO um, criteria. So suspected cases are cases should be suspected in patients who have acute respiratory illness and a history of a travel to area reporting transmission of the disease. Um, number two, this disease should be suspected in patients with acute respiratory illness and contact with a confirmed or probable COVID-19. And it should be suspected in a patient with severe respiratory infection and requiring hospitalization. So it is important for us to take a travel history from patients presenting with acute respiratory illness and take a good contact history from these patients. The third criteria is important. So at this time, where a lot of cases exist in many places, a patient who is hospitalized with severe respiratory tract infection and admit to the ICU, for example, and has no clear other etiology, COVID-19 should be suspected. Probable case refers to a suspected case in which the test was inconclusive. Confirmed case referred to a case where COVID-19 PCR is positive regardless of the clinical symptoms and signs. This is a disease that affects different age groups, but the vast majority of cases are reported in the age group between 30 to 79. According to this report from the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention, this is an important slide to explain the, um, the mortality of this disease. It, the overall mortality of COVID-19 is around 2 to 3%, but this includes all cases of different severity. 80% of cases of COVID-19 are considered not severe, mild, or some are including asymptomatic cases. And in this category, the mortality is quite low, is 0.1%. Around 20% of patients are considered severe or critical, 15% severe, not critical, and 5% are critical. Among these patients, mortality is 8%. And in the most severe patients who are in ICUs, mortality, according to published reports, varies from one paper to a paper, but the uh, two published reports um, cited here um, from Lancet Respiratory and from uh, New England report is between 40 to 60% mortality. So for among ICU patients with COVID-19, mortality is high. Although there are some reports uh, had lower mortality than this. In this uh, study reported in intensive care medicine, uh, looking at causes of death, 53% of the patients uh, had um, respiratory failure as the cause of death. Interestingly, 7% of patients were reported to have died because of myocardial damage or heart failure. 33% uh, were reported to have died because of respiratory failure with myocardial damage. We don't have more information at present about the extent of the cardiac involvement in this disease, but this is something will need to be further studied. In our paper in intensive care medicine, we compared um, COVID-19 to MERS and SARS in this table, which showed that the three viruses originated uh, from Asian countries, two from China, and the MERS from the Arabian Peninsula. 
The three viruses are zoonotic. They are linked to animals. In case of SARS, it was civet cats and bats, maybe. MERS is linked to uh, camels and COVID-19, possibly related to, to bats. Human-to-human -human transmission in the community occur in all these three infections uh, to different degrees. The community transmission of MERS is low, SARS is high, and in COVID-19 is probably very high. Unfortunately, the three coronavirus infections uh, share the feature of uh, nosocomial transmission. It is a significant problem in the three infections. The risk of to healthcare workers exists in the three infections, and we will be discussing this in a minute. The number of countries that have reported COVID-19 now exceeded 100 countries, with number of cases exceeded 100,000 um, compared to the other uh, outbreaks. For critically ill patients, the age, median age of these three diseases is almost similar. Comorbid conditions are common in the three infections, although it appears to be more common with MERS than COVID-19. ARDS are pneumonia and pneumonia are main features of the three infections. Shock and multi-organ failure occur in the three infection. Requirement of invasive ventilation, vasopressor, and renal replacement therapy uh, occur in COVID appears to be lower than what's in MERS and the mortality um, uh, is substantial in the three infections. Clinical presentation and diagnosis. Patients who are mildly ill from COVID-19, they present with upper respiratory infection. But those who come with severe infection, they have fever, cough, and dyspnea, so symptoms of pneumonia. These symptoms are not specific to COVID-19, obviously. And based on the clinical features alone, uh, one cannot differentiate COVID-19 from other viral infections or other pulmonary infections. Comorbid conditions are relatively uh, common in, in COVID-19, but probably less so than uh, what's observed with MERS infection. These patients present with pneumonia. They have infiltrate on X-ray. In China, there were a lot of patients who had CT scan done uh, to, to look for infiltrate. And uh, uh, the um, infiltrates were common. 86% of patients have abnormal CT scans with a ground glass appearance uh, of in 56%. But interestingly, uh, some patients with confirmed COVID-19 had normal CT scan, 18% in the non-severe disease. And even in the most severe patients, 3% had normal CT scans. And possibly they evolved later to have infiltrates. Um, this is um, what CT scan might look like in COVID-19, bilateral opacities that um, and then this patient on day five, and they um, uh, improved on day 19. This is three-dimensional CT scan, um, which showed, um, in a, a case report in intensive care medicine, showed the extensive infiltrate and the septal lines um, uh, involving both lungs. This slide shows that um, 
the comparison between CT scan and PCR yield. And it shows that there are some patients who have normal CT scan, but they are positive by PCR and vice versa. There are some patients who have a, who have a, um, a, a, a normal CT scan and PCR. So negative, negative PCR, negative PCR does not necessarily exclude the disease and uh, in suspected patients, uh, PCR should be repeated. The, the, the disease is diagnosed by PCR from upper or lower respiratory samples. Uh, patients with pneumonia um, uh, probably, preferably should have lower uh, samples uh, from sputum or endotracheal aspirates or bronchoalveolar lavage. As I said, in highly suspected cases, uh, sample probably should be repeated if it's negative, despite uh, suspicious clinical features. SARS-CoV has been isolated from stool and blood. While this may not be necessary uh, part of the diagnostics workup, it is important for us who are managing patients in the ICU to be aware of the implication for infection control and disposal of, um, of um, stool and blood and body fluids. Viral shedding um, persists for several days and maybe sometimes in certain patients for a longer period of time from the nasopharynx. Um, and, and according to this study, on a median duration of viral shedding was 12 days and 83% had viral shedding for seven days or longer. At, uh, there are limited histopathologic studies. There's one uh, publication of um, a patient who had a post-mortem histopathologic studies, and I compared it here with our case report where we looked at the histopathology. Uh, the lung and both infection showed diffuse alveolar damage. In our MERS patient, we were able to isolate the, localize the virus by electron microscopy. Um, in this COVID-19 patient, uh, there was no PD biopsy, but in the MERS patient, there was acute tubular injury and, and the virus was lo localized by electron microscopy. Uh, in this patient, uh, in the two patients, actually, there was no historical changes in the heart, um, no muscle biopsy in the COVID, while in the MERS patient, there was myositis and uh, atrophic changes and the virus was localized by electron microscopy. Liver in both, um, in both infection appear to cause lobular and portal hepatitis. In the ICU, patients come uh, predominantly because of ARDS. Um, in this uh, study, 61% of patients in the ICU had ARDS. Um, some patients, 31% had shock. 22% uh, have acute cardiac injury. Interestingly, 44% were reported to have arrhythmias. This would be need to be further to be further uh, um, uh, uh, characterized uh, as it um, uh, and to be better understood regarding the underlying mechanism. Therapeutics given in different series varies to some extent. But generally, many patients received antiviral therapy. In this series, 72% of ICU patients received steroids. Non-invasive ventilation is commonly used, 42%. And we're going to talk about 
this one, um, uh, and uh, ECMO, 11% of patients in this study. It is important to recognize the possible transmission within hospitals for COVID-19. In one study, 41% of patients were presumed to have related to transmission within the hospital. This included patients who were hospitalized for other reasons and included healthcare workers as well. In the Chinese CDC report, um, healthcare personnel um, infected constituted 3.8% of all uh, patients with COVID-19. 15% of them were classified to be severe or critical and five deaths were reported. It is very important to be familiar with the infection control precautions and recommendations in your hospital and in your region because there's some variation from um, one place to the other based on the resources and the context. Um, suspected and confirmed cases should be managed in a negative pressure room ideally um, and strict compliance with hand hygiene and standard precautions should be followed. Airborne and eye contact isolation if possible or otherwise droplet isolation. However, we need to be aware of airborne precaution for when performing aerosol generating procedures such as tracheal intubation, non-invasive ventilation, tracheostomy, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, manual ventilation, and bronchoscopy. Um, it's very important then to use fit-tested N95 mask or PAPAR uh, in addition to eye protection and fluid-resistant gown and disposable gloves. Supportive therapy is the mainstay for management of COVID-19. The WHO has um, uh, an outstanding document regarding the summarizing the evidence and giving guidance related to uh, the management of uh, COVID-19. Also, we had a recent article on the critical management, critical care management of adults with community-acquired um, respiratory viral infection in intensive care medicine. Non-invasive ventilation, as I explained, uh, has been used uh, widely in uh, patients with COVID-19. Um, but I think we need to, uh, data about the efficacy is still not clear, but we may want to um, uh, put it in the context of what, what we know from other viral infections. This is the largest cohort study of MERS patients uh, with non-invasive ventilation, 300 patients with MERS, around one-third of them had non-invasive ventilation used. 92% of the patients failed intubation and required invasive ventilation. And the ones who failed invasive ventilation, failed non-invasive ventilation, required to be intubated, were, um, became more hypoxic and required oxygen rescue therapies. Although at the end, the non-invasive ventilation was not independently associated with 90-day mortality. The experience with influenza and SARS um, uh, are all based on observational studies, and um, there are variable results. Some re studies with non-invasive ventilation influenza H1N1 reported failure up to 85%. Um, another observational study reported 57% failure rate to invasive ventilation was um, especially with high SOFA score of five or more. Non-invasive ventilation was associated 
with increased mortality. In SARS, um, there are conflicting studies, but there are concerns about transmission of SARS to healthcare workers. So non-invasive ventilation, if used, should be in selected patients, early stages, and mild forms acute, of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Should be avoided in shock, multi-organ failure, and in patients with large amount of secretions. And in patients who don't show signs of improvement, I think we need to be worried about delaying intubation, and early intubation probably will be um, the most appropriate action. High flow nasal cannula in a systematic review in patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure of different etiologies decreased the need for tracheal intubation without impacting mortality. Um, in a small cohort of patients with influenza uh, H1N1, um, high flow nasal cannula avoided intubation in about 50% of patients, but um, almost patients with high severity required to be intubated. The experience with ECMO um, um, on COVID-19 is only in the, in the general uh, studies that uh, uh, reported the patients in the ICU, so we don't know about the efficacy, obviously. But the, as we all aware, the EOLIA trial uh, showed that ECMO did not reduce mortality at 60 days, not statistically significantly so. Uh, there was a trend, and a post hoc Bayesian analysis suggested that ECMO might be beneficial um, in, in this context. Observation studies of influenza, pandemic influenza H1N1, uh, suggested lower mortality uh, with transferring to ECMO center compared to matched non-ECMO referred patients. So there may be a, a role for ECMO in selected patients with COVID-19 um, if the resources and the setting is appropriate. This is a study from MERS, a case control study showing um, 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 uh, that ECMO was associated with lower mortality when compared to a matched control group. Cardiovascular management, I think uh, one, to, one thing to keep in mind that uh, um, it appears there's um, uh, some patients have cardiovascular uh, failure and uh, the presence of arrhythmia suggests that there may be myocardial involvement. Um, this is not surprising. It is not uncommon in influenza to have myocardial involvement um, and myocarditis. Echocardiographic studies often showed right and left ventricular dysfunction. Myocarditis um, uh, in influenza has been associated with longer duration of uh, vasopressors and requirement of ECMO. So in COVID-19, um, we will need more information and more data about the cardiac involvement. Uh, but at, at bedside, I think we need to be um, uh, careful about the fluid management and probably use more conservative fluid management approach and avoid uh, inotropic agents that are more associated with arrhythmias. With the large number of patients um, that are uh, expanding every day, 
there's also an, um, a sharp increase in the number of clinical trials, which is, which is a great thing. So there are many trials being testing different agents and antivirals, including remsidivir, different antiretroviral, um, and chloroquine and other agents. There are studies looking at biological therapies of different types. There are different uh, treatments uh, that are immunomodularity, modularity, uh, uh, including corticosteroids, interferons, um, and others, and uh, uh, several other trials. So I think we will be learning a lot more about the more effective therapies for COVID in the coming weeks or months. Corticosteroids use have been summarized in a recent paper, the evidence based on MERS, SARS, and influenza and RSV, and suggested in this uh, uh, commentary in, in Lancet that uh, the clinical evidence doesn't support corticosteroid uh, therapy for COVID-19. This is our paper in the Blue Journal where we looked at corticosteroids for MERS patients. This slide shows the timing where when steroids started by physicians, and you could see it spread throughout the days uh, after ICU admission. So um, um, as a clinician, you may, may not start steroids on day one, but if the patient's not doing well, you may start it later, which is very appropriate clinically, but when, it, uh, when such patient is compared with, uh, with the control group, it creates uh, significant confounding and bias. The first one is called immortal time bias. So a patient who survived till day seven cannot be compared with a patient who did not receive steroids but died on day one because the patient who survived day seven has already survived seven days and he's different uh, from the ones who died much earlier. This type of bias systematically underestimates the occurrence of adverse outcomes. It look, makes the intervention look better. The other type of bias is the indication bias, that we start treatments when things are not doing well. This type of bias will make the intervention look worse. And without accounting for these time co varying covariates, um, the, the, um, the study will be very difficult to um, uh, interpret in terms of whether the association is true or it's related to the indication or immortal time bias. We illustrated this by doing different models. So if you do a logistic regression model, we found that steroids was associated with increased mortality when you adjust only for baseline characteristics. But adjusting for baseline characteristics doesn't take in consideration what happened later. Um, so when we adjust for time to corticosteroids in Cox proportion model, the association became uh, neutral. And in a, a more sophisticated model called marginal structural model, where you adjust for the probability of getting the treatment on every day, steroids did not appear to be associated with uh, uh, mortality. But it was associated with increased uh, with uh, increased shedding of duration of shedding of the virus. This is consistent with what's seen in SARS. There are several systematic reviews on corticosteroids in influenza. Many of these, like this one, 
looked at crude mortality, which again does not take in consideration all the confounding factors. This uh, systematic review and several others have shown that the mortality is higher. But I think we um, the whole picture is is probably uh, different because you need to take in account the uh, other confounding factors. So at present, it's not been recommended to use in a very com, uh, routinely corticosteroids for COVID-19 um, because of the risk of increase, the, the uh, risk of increasing viral replication and lack of evidence and, and the signal towards harm seen with influenza. Antiviral therapy, um, the WHO prioritization uh, group uh, has um, uh, classified remdesivir uh, uh, as the high priority for uh, research. Uh, in vitro activity, the, the agent has in vitro activity against MERS-CoV, SARS-CoV, as well as Ebola. And at present, there are ongoing trials in China for severe um, um, COVID, and also another trial for non-severe COVID-19. And there's another, a third trial running in the United States. The other second agent is lupinavir, ritonavir, which is an HIV drug, uh, has a limited side effect. It has been used in SARS, uh, uh, a study that compared 41 patients to historical control, reported uh, better clinical outcomes with lupinavir, but it did not account for differences in um, indication so again, it's an observation study and should keep it in that context. In high throughput uh, screening for MERS, uh, for, for antiviral comport for MERS, MERS, the uh, lupinavir, ritonavir, appear to be uh, effective um, in inhibiting the virus at uh, levels below that what happened with the single dose of this medication. This is a case series where they looked at uh, this is a case series of patients with SARS were treated with lupinavir ritonavir and given um, and monitored the uh, viral um, uh, load uh, in respiratory samples and you could see significant decline after starting the treatment in the treatment group, not in the control group. In the treatment group, there was a patient who remained continued to have high viral load. And interestingly, this patient had received uh, pulse steroids. Chloroquine uh, has been on the news in the last few weeks based on a news release uh, from China that suggested that it has been used in uh, more than 100 patients and it um, and, uh, uh, showed uh, uh, efficacy uh, compared to the cohort compared to control group, but data is not, are not been published and, uh, and uh, I think we are waiting for, for, these, uh, for this data. It has efficacy in, uh, in vitro, um, uh, in, um, as in, uh, showed in this paper, uh, as well as uh, remdesivir. Of note, uh, lupinavir, ritonavir, and interferon beta-1b are being studied uh, in a miracle trial for MERS-CoV. This is a trial sponsored by King Abdullah International Medical Research Center. 
the trial started um, in 2016, uh, the disease, because the disease is becoming now uh, uncommon, it took some time. We have recruited the 93rd patient recently. We're targeting 114 patients. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all my colleagues and co-investigators um, in all the hospitals that are participating in this trial, and particularly uh, the sponsor, uh, King Abdullah International Medical Research Center, and my colleagues at Prince Mohammed bin Abdulaziz Hospital for their great participation in the trial. This is our paper on rapivirin interferon um, in critical patients with MERS. Um, and um, uh, this uh, study showed, again, when we adjust for time varying confounding, uh, there was no difference with rapivirin and interferon um, on mortality or on, vi on the duration of viral uh, shedding. Um, of note, the types of interferons used here are interferons alpha or interferon beta 1a, not interferon beta 1b that might be the most effective one for MERS. Uh, so in, in vitro studies suggested that interferon beta 1b had the strongest inhibition of, of the virus compared to the other interferons. We don't know the different effect of interferons at present for uh, SARS-CoV-2, and studies for this are needed. During SARS and MERS outbreaks, um, there were recommendations uh, to, use, um, to use different agents without having the proper evidence base and subsequently, many of these treatments uh, were found to be ineffective and maybe harmful. I think we should um, encourage that uh, such therapeutics be used within clinical studies as much as possible and not off-label um, therapies. Data about co-infection are emerging. The first two studies are uh, not peer-reviewed. They are available on the internet, suggested that many patients uh, with COVID-19 had other bacterial or viral infections. Of note, in MERS, 18% of patients had bacterial co-infection and 5% had viral co-infection. And, um, uh, and therefore, a patient who comes with COVID-19 should receive empiric antibacterial therapy that is um, appropriate for community-acquired pneumonia um, and then uh, this treatment can be de-escalated uh, as the clinical course goes. As it's uh, 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 clear, there are many questions need to be answered to better manage this infection. And traditional randomized control trials where we test single hypotheses at a time are uh, being implemented in many diseases, and uh, uh, but they probably in this type of infection and maybe in many uh, conditions critically ill, they may, may not be the most efficient way because this is going to take very long time if we do a trial on antiviral and then do interferon and steroids, for example. The um, REMAP-CAB, um, uh, led by uh, uh, Professor Steve Webb, and I'm privileged to be an investigator on this trial, um, is an adaptive uh, 
study. It's a, it's a platform of a randomized embedded multifactorial adaptive platform where multiple interventions can be tested at the same time and um, uh, allow um, um, interaction to test the interaction between these uh, treatments um, and uh, uh, allow also adaptive randomization. So for COVID suspected and confirmed COVID-19, patient may be randomized to multiple uh, uh, interventions at the same time. So we will be able to gain uh, much more information about all these interventions uh, in an efficient way. WHO also has been uh, working on the multi-center adaptive randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial uh, master protocol for COVID-19 for hospitalized patients. Um, and it's um, also a, a great uh, a protocol uh, for hospitalized patients with COVID-19. So what do we conclude? At hospital level, I think we need to be prepared. Um, we need to be know how to manage these patients from the point of entry to the hospital, the triage, disposition, we should have a clear um, infection control guidelines for the hospital, and all the staff should be aware and adherent to. At the level of a practitioner, I think we the most important thing, in my opinion, is to be familiar with the case definition. Otherwise, cases may be not discovered until late, and by then, uh, problems with the infection and spreading the infection can be uh, tremendous. Strict compliance with the infection control. Previous outbreaks have taught us that if you use uh, uh, infection control precaution properly, the risk of transmission to the healthcare workers and to other patients um, doesn't exist. It is our responsibility to ourselves, to our families, and to our patients to adhere to infection control precautions so we protect uh, our system. We need to be aware of the diagnostic testing and the, um, uh, for this disease. And uh, uh, at this point, supportive care is the main stay of therapy. And we should be optimizing using the evidence-based practices because that will influence uh, substantially a patient uh, outcome. At present, there is no data to support the use of uh, any single antiviral therapy and uh, is not recommended in the current practice guidelines, and um, um, participation in clinical trials is highly advised. I'd like to thank you all for listening to this webinar, and, uh, and at this point, I'm gonna be taking some of the questions that we have received. So one of the questions, can you clarify whether high flow nasal oxygen um, or non-invasive classify as aerosol producing procedure similar to intubation or suctioning? And the answer is yes. There is a systematic review published a few years ago that included non-invasive ventilation, did not include high flow nasal cannula, but found that non-invasive ventilation was associated with nosocomial transmission. So at this time, I think we should be um, uh, uh, considering these uh, uh, modalities as aerosol producing procedures and take precautions. There are some uh, uh, modeling 
studies that try to reproduce aerosol, but it is hard to produce the aerosol in a way that is similar to what's seen in 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 patients. Another uh, question: um, How about cytokine removal by absorption? The um, answer is not known. We I don't think there are any reports about this yet. Uh, I think it's too early to make any comment about this uh, topic. A question about have you tried high um, uh, nitric inhaled nitric oxide based on a clinical trial that's being conducted? Uh, and the answer is no at this time. I think inhaled nitric oxide, we should follow the guidelines for ARDS that is not commonly, that is not recommended uh, for, um, for ARDS. Next question, uh, what ventilator settings for this type of ARDS? Uh, this, I think we should follow the standard uh, uh, guidelines for managing ARDS with lung protective strategy, 6 ml per kg of tidal volume, and probably higher PEEB with the plateau pressure doesn't exceed 30, if possible. Uh, what's the dose of steroids? Uh, the steroid issue is highly controversial. Uh, I mentioned the argument for not using steroids. There are people who argue why should we use why their steroids should be used. Um, and I think uh, we will be learning more about this. There are ongoing clinical trials on steroids as present. Part of it will going to be in the uh, remap cab and other uh, studies in China. Uh, but at this time, I think with the lack of evidence and the risk of viral replication. I think we better uh, avoid the use of uh, uh, corticosteroids. Which kind of antiviral therapy um, do I recommend? Um, I mentioned the antiviral therapy that are considered priority for research. None of them have uh, evidence at present to be used in uh, clinical uh, practice. How about children? There is a small percentage of uh, children reported in the Chinese um, uh, series. Um, most children were mild, had mild infection. Um, data emerging on this, but it might, uh, might be different from one country to the co other country. So I think we will be learning about this more uh, in the coming um, weeks or, or months. What's the percentage of patients who are on ECMO? Obviously, this differs from one uh, side to side, but at least in the published series around, uh, in some places, around 10% of patients required ECMO. But again, that will, uh, what, that will be what depends on the site and the uh, patient population. With this, I'd like to thank you all for listening to this uh, uh, webinar and um, appreciate uh, everybody's uh, uh, time. Thank you.